put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. This is the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Young or old, professional or amateur, you've never missed a day of practice, or maybe you're coming back to rediscover the joy you once knew playing your trumpet. For those who love and are fascinated with this crazy instrument that no one can seem to master or is foolish enough to admit it if they have, this show covers all of the trumpet dynamics. Well, thanks for pressing play on the podcast today. This is James, and I'm your host. And no, I am not sitting atop a cavernous gulch. I am actually in a very uh, empty room recording this. I am living temporarily in uh, Vietnam, where I'm recording this podcast. And the only room that I have access to to record is uh, doesn't have anything that soaks up any sound. I mean, literally, it has nothing. There's no carpet. There's nothing on the walls. It's pretty bare bones, and it's not optimal for recording a podcast, but you know what? If you wait till everything is perfect, then you're not going to get anything done. So that's just the way I roll. This is a terrific, terrific episode right from the factory of the Peter Pickett and Blackburn Trumpet mouthpiece empire. Uh, we recorded it right in the uh, shop, right there in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, in August of 2019. And we arranged for the interview earlier in 2019. And, uh, well, it, it worked out that I was visiting Kentucky, and I was able to stop in the shop. So we get the real live experience of the sounds of trumpets and mouthpieces being made right, right while we had our conversation. And Peter got into the beginnings of, the, of his um, venture as a, as a mouthpiece maker. And uh, it's just really fascinating for me to listen to. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. And uh, we talked about his story how he got where he is now, uh, when he knew that it was the right time to go full-time making mouthpieces and quit his, quote, real job and focus uh, specifically on uh, making trumpet mouthpieces. And we also got into a little bit about kind of the mentality or the mindset that separates the best of the best trumpet players that uh, are Peter's clients. So really, really fascinating interview. I'm really excited to finally be able to get this on the air and into your earballs. So thanks again for pressing play, and let's turn it over to my chat with Peter Pickett of the Pickett Mouthpiece and Blackburn Trumpet Empire. PicketBlackburn.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And, um, wow, what an honor to have on to the podcast Peter Pickett. He is, of course, the founder of Pickett Mouthpieces, recently acquired the Blackburn Trumpet brand, one of my favorite trumpet brands out there. And um, 
I came into the factory today and, and I, I like have seen your face before and I know that you you know make mouthpieces and beyond that I really don't know anything about you and I really don't know anything about making mouthpieces but you know first of all Peter welcome to the show thank you appreciate you having me all right so I mean you were showing me some really top secret stuff and I have to delete the video that I took on my <laughs> on my Facebook Live, so I've already taken care of that. Excellent, Don't worry about that. excellent. But I, I, just, I guess I just want to start out with a very open-ended question, and it can, it can rabbit hole to wherever it goes, but just tell us, um, how did you get into the business? When, how, where, why? Yeah, well, it's, um, as with most life stories, it's turned its winded way as it's gone through life, but it started innocently enough in 2003, just in a garage behind my house and I really wanted some cool finger buttons for my trumpet. And finger buttons? I was just playing you know, stock Yamaha horn and I thought I'd make some cool little finger buttons and so I had a little basic metal cheap lathe and made some finger buttons by hand and uh, you know, that was it basically for a couple of years and people would see them and go, hey, those are cool. Can you make me some? Alright, no big deal. But as you might have guessed, it's very labor intensive to do it by hand and so it quickly matured to a little bit more CNC kind of work to make those buttons. But Are you a machinist that like plays trumpet or a trumpet player that dabbled with machinery? <laughs> so I, uh, I completed a mechanical engineering degree first. Got it. And then I have a degree in trumpet performance. Okay. And then I did a master's in mechanical engineering and acoustics. But from there, I did not go into music or anything like that. I moved to Lexington, Kentucky to work for Lexmark International Printer Maker doing mechanical modeling and um, mathematical modeling and writing software and it, it was a good fit for what a lot of my masters was in but it certainly wasn't trumpet related yeah. out of the gate. So. Was that, I mean, was that your goal to, I mean, why did you get a trumpet performance degree and all these other <laughs> fancy degrees? Because I was playing so much that, you know, the degree was, it only took an extra year to take a few oh, theory okay. courses and play a few more recitals and so it made sense, right? I, I was at Virginia Tech. It's a great place. It's a great school. I love going back. I didn't want to leave. And so why not play trumpet and stay in school and play gigs? And, and then I stayed another couple of years to do the engineering degree while I was still playing. I mean, shouldn't have left is what it comes down to. So, no, it was it was a wonderful way to mix all the disciplines, to do both degrees, and to, to keep my foot in both, both sides. At what point did, like, making finger buttons turn into mouthpieces <laughs> like when did when did like picket mouthpieces come right. into being yeah so the, the finger button thing was was interesting enough for a hobby right yeah. you make a few buttons and life yeah. is good but you can't you can't make millions of dollars making finger buttons you can't make millions of dollars making mouthpieces either. well you'd be surprised okay <laughs> we'll get into that but the, but the finger button thing it was you know you buy one set and you're done yeah. whereas most trumpet players have more than one mouthpiece right and mouthpieces are much more uh, functional per se, right? You need them to produce the sound in your head and to get around your horn. It's something that is a performance driver. And so going from making trim sets, bottom caps, and all those little parts, we had all this machinery and we didn't have anything to do. And so mouthpieces were the natural progression in that it is the, it is the um, high use item in the music business and near and dear to all of our hearts as players, you know, searching for the perfect mouthpiece. And so we worked with Vince DiMartino and got him off the ground and with us, got us off the ground with us to, to design some interesting mouthpieces for him. 
And he was a very uh, fortuitous run-in because he plays very middle-of-the-road equipment. A lot of artists, uh, Roger Ingram, Bazzuti, these guys play very specific, very specialized things that work for them extremely well, as we all know, but a lot of people just can't play their mouthpieces, whereas Vince is right down the middle, very traditional, um, and his mouthpieces, his signature line is by far the most popular because it fits so many people and it performs so well. So that was a nice way to get started, to work with him, design some mouthpieces that work for him, and then we've, we've grown some How did you approach Vince DiMartino? Big name, great guy. He is always interested in helping okay. people. Okay. And, and anybody that's done a master class with him or taken lessons, he is more than happy to give anybody help and guidance as long as you're open-minded and willing to listen and, and uh, act on what he's telling you to do. So any master class, he'll sit there and talk for hours as long as you're interested. If you're not interested, he won't waste his time. He'll leave. And so he's in town, right? He's down in Danville. It's only 40 minutes away. And he's always interested in improving and changing his equipment. And so it was a natural fit from the beginning. What time frame is this? This was 2007. Seven. Um, 2007 and 8, I believe. Well, you have, like, Alan Bazzuti, so many really top-of-the-line players Mm -hmm. who, you know, they've they've come to you or you've, I don't know, you've come to them and um, they're just singing your praises. Yeah, so so what exactly do they say? Do they say, Peter made the most perfect mouthpiece? No, they don't say that. So the reason that people come here is because they like working with us. It's about the relationship. Anybody can make a mouthpiece, right? Anybody can make them a mouthpiece. And there are a lot of great mouthpiece makers in the world today. We're all friends. We all know each other. But people, some people like to come here because of how we work with folks and how we listen. We try to listen and take what you're saying because I don't know what's going on with you other than your sound. I don't know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. You tell me something, we can usually translate that into an improvement and give you something else. And so it's a constant iterative approach, but people like coming here and hanging out. It's a... So it's more of a people-based business. I mean, you make mouthpieces, but you're... I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is it the mouthpiece business or is it people business? We are in the people business. You're in the people business. Because if you're just in the product business... You're just another person. You're, I mean, yeah. you're just another product, yeah. another another widget, um, and people feel that. Hmm. It's the difference, you know, um, in going to a local shoe store company that they know who you are, they've seen you before, they have different shoes, they have more options, they have the ability to fit you right there, they have the ability to to listen and to take the time. That makes you feel better than if you go to a, a big national retailer and the guy doesn't know shoe sizes or know what brands you have, right? It just feels better. You, you can get a mouthpiece anywhere, right? There is no doubt that there are tons of great makers and great mouthpieces that will work fine for you. But people like us, they like talking to us at trade shows, ITG, NTC, and they like coming here and working with us. I see so many, like, Yamaha has, has all these signature... Do you, do you do that? Like, you'll have a Bazzuti signature? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, we, but, we but, do that. But do you, do you run into that issue of, like, I'm going to get this mouthpiece and I'm going to sound like Alan Mazzuti? Yes, and so the, the real purpose to having that signature series that you point out, so Alan Mazzuti and Roger Ingram and soon to come Chuck Lazarus, and then uh, Wycliffe Gordon and Trombone, you know, the list goes on. The reason is not so much to sell you an Alan Bazzuti mouthpiece so you sound like Alan Bazzuti. Yeah. The point is credibility. Yeah. If you're able to work with these kind of guys and and they endorse you and they perform on your equipment and they feel like it and they'll say that it helps them play better, that's pretty resounding endorsements. Yes. So it's a credibility builder, not so much a revenue builder. People mm. people do idolized Azuti I have for years, right? Sure. And to own his mouthpiece is not so much to think that you're going to play like him, but it's kind of like having a part of him with you. It's yes. kind of like Bazzuti saying, Peter Pickett makes good mouthpieces. Yeah. And that makes a huge do you difference. Right. That makes a huge difference. And so we have been very fortunate to have a lot of connections and to be introduced to these guys and have a chance to work with them. How did you meet Alan Bazzuti? How did he... Well, Vince. He's a good okay. friend of Vince. They yeah, were in yeah. school together. Okay. And so Vince was in town for, or um, Bazzuti was in town for a clinic. And Vince is like, hey, let's go over to Peter's place. Let me show you something. You know, sure enough. So we made a couple pieces for Alan then, and he's played on them since. So again, very fortuitous people business. It's not like we had the greatest mouthpiece ever and Bazzuti sought it out and, and found it and thought it was great. Right. So, yeah, very much. Again, but, but if, like, Alan Bazzuti is going to come into your shop, what's the process of winning him over, <laughs> for lack of a better term? Yeah. Well, it's, at first, it's extremely intimidating. Yes. As you might imagine. Absolutely. But nine times out of ten, people like him and Jens Lindemann, they are extraordinarily warm people. And they're down to earth. They are very respectful. They don't walk in and you know, say, hey, do you know who I am? They're very down-to-earth, respectful. They play trumpet. They don't make stuff. And so they kind of have open eyes and in awe of seeing things and learning new things, uh, just like we look to them to learn how to hear new things and to play new things. So uh, Jens Lindemann was in uh, a while ago, and again, Jens is, Jens is very Jens, right? He's very excitable, and I was very worried about being able to keep up with him while he was here. But when he got here, he was very calm, we had a very relaxing day, so he would say, I'm playing this mouthpiece on my B-flat, listen to this. I wish it was a little bit more like this. So we go make something, and we hand it to him. And he goes, yeah, that's a lot better, but I wish it did this. And then we get in a nice flow, a nice pace of prototyping and him playing. Walk up the street, have some barbecue, come back, work a little bit more, walk down the street, have a beer. It has to be calm for everybody's benefit. So, most part, you know, that's how it is when people come. Okay, so you're going to give, like, Jens Lindemann, Alan Bazzuti, red carpet treatment. Mm-hmm. Because they are who they are. They, they deserve that respect. But let's say a James Newcomb walks in. <laughs> Nobody knows him except for running his mouth on a silly podcast from time to time. What's the difference? Be- Let me ask this. What is the process of, like, are you going to give me the same level of attention? That's a great question. And to back up, Jens and, and Bazzuti, those are two examples of the most humble superstars that are out there today. Okay. And neither one of them walks in expecting anything. You know, they're very polite. They're very respectful. They say, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah. And so it, it helps break the ice a little bit. Sure. But 
if anybody else shows up, we do the same thing. Okay. It's just the right thing to do. And I can't, I can't shortcut my way through a visit to give you less, right? We have to do the same thing with anybody who is requesting some changes in equipment or mouthpiece or custom work. We have to listen. We have to hear you play. You may be better at verbalizing what is what you're feeling. Um, you may play a way that I hear it more. Um, low brass players come in, uh, and I have I have the hardest time hearing differences in tuba. I just can't hear it. So I have to get a lot of help from guys in the shop to listen um, and to say, yeah, the, the articulation here or the sound here is different. So we have to work together, and it doesn't really matter who it is that comes in. Well, I want, I want to back up just a little bit to, like, the founding, like going from a hobby to a, like a legit business, and this is like 2007. There's hundreds, thousands of mouthpiece makers out there already. What's going through your mind when you're like looking at this? It has to be a daunting task to be like, why does the world need another mouthpiece maker? Right. Well, that, that's. I probably have some unconscious irrationality that, that helps me keep going every day, just some lunacy, right? Because logically, this this would make no sense, especially in 2000, 2008. I mean, think about what the economy is going through. Yeah. You're going to be a new company with a new product, and I've got to convince people to give me money. It's probably not going to be real successful, is it? Um, now, at the time, I was still working at Lexmark, so I had the day job, and I was doing this as well on the side, and that, that buffered a lot of that instability. So I didn't necessarily have to make money to survive. Um, But that leap of faith is very difficult. And so that didn't happen for me until four and a half years ago. So I was working both jobs full time, doing everything, up until about almost five years ago now. Seriously? So that was trying. Um, I have a couple of kids too. And so, you know, life is pretty busy. And so, but... it was easy to do because everything was fulfilling, right? So this, this business was going well, and it was interesting to see people. Lexmark was fine, but at some point, right, we were talking with Cliff Blackburn a number of years ago about acquiring his business. And Cliff and I have been friends for years, and he finally told me one day, he's like, you know, this is great and all, and I'm really excited, but how are you going to get all this done with how you are now with working two jobs and so on? And that kind of woke me up a little bit on, all right, some, somebody has to make a choice here. And if I don't make a choice, somebody's going to make a choice for me. What do you mean? Who's going to so, make a choice for For instance, if, if you do too many things, you'll typically do all of them poorly. Yeah. Versus trying to focus on a few things and doing those well. So I would be not very good in my day job. This company would not survive very well. We'd make bad products. The Blackburn Trumpet thing wouldn't go well. I mean, and then everything's a failure. So I finally made the choice, and I, I left, and it's been crazy busy here with the acquisition of Blackbird. That was January 1st, 2016 now, so, and that was that was an incredibly steep learning curve. So a mouthpiece is one piece of metal, a trumpet's 100 pieces of metal, and so it's a little more complicated, we got a lot more processes, and you know, there wasn't a lot of stuff that we'd done before. So there was a very steep learning curve, and that took a lot of time. And ultimately, it's been successful, but it didn't feel like it in the midst. So each one of those transitions has been very difficult and a little scary, but only in the moment. It quickly passes because if you stop to think about it, you're, you're going to sink. 
It's like being dropped in the deep end of a pool. If you sit there and you think about it, you drown. You start swimming, don't you? So that's that's what most of this, the changes have been, is you just got to start swimming and find your way. Was there a moment where you just said, okay, this is it, I have to make this decision, and it's picket, mouthpieces all the way? Yeah, and that and you think about that every day. Hmm. You know, you have a hard day where you didn't get something done or, you know, something didn't go well. Every day you make that choice. Because we could, we could close today. I'm tired. I want to go home. Let's close up. You can choose. You can quit your job, you know. But we also know that any one day doesn't define how everything is. So you come back the next day, open your eyes again. I don't care about the past. What am I going to do today? Looking forward. And that's how you get through the tough times, on whether it's steep learning curves or uh, you know, a difficult customer or, or a difficult project. I could not find a mouthpiece for that guy to save my life. That can be very demoralizing. So you know, does that mean that you shouldn't make any mouthpieces? No, no. You just Maybe you'll learn something new this time. And we typically do learn something new every time a customer comes in. Wow. So well, I, sort of what I was getting at was like, when you had these two jobs, uh, did you, was there an aha moment or was, was there just a, a moment of, this is it, this is what I'm doing. Can you, can you take us to that mm. moment where you just made that decision, I'm going to commit <laughs> to Trumpet, not Calgary's? That, um, that decision point is not super clear. It, w- it would make for a better story to have an aha moment. But for years and years, it was a complete irrational, unconscious drive to produce, okay. right? To think and to develop, um, not just to do, because doing usually dead ends you somewhere. You had to think and develop, the business developed, the marketing developed, the processes on how we do things here, which is the key, developed. All that stuff was going on and you know, everything was fulfilling, like I said, and so there was no need to make that choice. Uh, the choice came when when the business, the, the Pickett Blackburn, was becoming uh, very extended, right? We're going to a lot of trade shows. We're doing all brass instrument mouthpieces, this whole trumpet thing. It quickly became to the point where you could not keep it all in your head. And so there probably was a moment of frustration where, look, I'm, I'm starting to sense some failure here. I have to make a choice before yeah. everything fails, and so it was. It was probably a year in the making before I actually left. That you know, you make a choice and start putting things in order to make sure that that's going to work. I'm interested in the Blackburn brand because that's one of my favorite instruments to play, and uh, I know that Cliff. I've never met the man personally, uh, but I know he's very, very meticulous. Yes. Uh, I just saw the little. Uh, Newspaper clipping on your wall. Mm-hmm. It, I think it takes them a week and a half, two weeks to make one trumpet. Mm-hmm. Is it the same level of detail? Are you able to um, maybe mass produce or s- sort of outsource some of the things that he did? Or mm-hmm. uh, tell us about the acquisition and then improving sure. on what he had done. You know, Cliff is very meticulous yeah. and he has spent years and years and years refining how he makes trumpets and whether you agree with how he makes trumpets or not, his product speaks for itself. Right. And so the consistency through the 30, 40 years of him making lead pipes and slides to, into horns, that was the scariest part of, of carrying that forward because you know the public relations aspect of this was a complete nightmare. 
you know, re- without us having not, done nothing, rumors were already flying like, well, Blackburn's going to hell. Right? These kids are going to get this, and this, you know, it's not going to be the same. So we knew that before we even started, that that was going to be a challenge. And so in studying with Cliff for six, seven years prior to the acquisition being announced, we had to go through how he made a bell, how he made his valve sections, how he made his lead pipes, all the pieces and parts, so that we could carry it forward. And in the market, there is no perceivable difference between our produced Blackbird trumpet and a Cliff produced Blackbird. So this goes all the way down to the hand engraving. So Cliff and I spent years together doing his hand engraving, not making a trumpet, but learning how to do the hand engraving. So that when you buy a Blackburn trumpet today, it looks identical to what Cliff would produce down to the engraving, the hand engraving, not machine engraving, but the hand engraving. My, my grandfather was a jeweler and he did hand engraving. And so it was an interesting connection there to, okay, this was meant to be, I need to learn how to do so we, we spent years studying with Cliff on how he made a trumpet. Now, throughout those years, uh, you know, I asked him a lot of questions on, well, why are we doing it like this? This seems crazy. And Cliff would have two responses. One, because you have to do it like this, and he would tell me the reason why. Or he would say, that's just the way I did it. And we would talk about different ways to do things. And he has been an integral partner to things improving here. Mm. Not so much in speed, because frankly, it takes a long time to build a trumpet. That's just the way it is. But in how we make certain parts and how we fixture certain parts, he's very open and flexible and has been a great advisor for years and years in saying, yes, Peter, that's a faster way to do it, but here's why you probably don't want to do it like that. And list out some other things that I hadn't thought about. So it's been very cordial. It's been very um, strong partnership through the years to make sure that we got through that. And Cliff comes up to our shop every few months, and we have a list of questions for him, and he likes to see what we're doing, and then he likes to go home. Does he like what you're doing? Yes, he does. Good. So he has gone to multiple trade shows with us, Uh you know, and the point of him being there is to, from him to say, these things are great. I like what they sound like. I like what you're doing. Well, yeah, because that's really important to me to know that he's not just grinding his teeth and thinking, well, oh, well. No, he's proud. To see it go on and I'm very proud to carry on a legacy that you know if it had stopped at one generation it would have been a loss for the industry and I think there's a there's a huge sense of responsibility that I have in order to carry that forward and keep it what it has been in the market because the market deserves to have a horn like a blackbird and for us to be able to continue that has been pretty exciting well I, I and trying to put myself in your shoes and I'm thinking one it would be a great honor to do that and two I would just be scared out of my wits yes to, to take that what a responsibility yeah well I, and like I said that first one or two years was just sheer just sheer madness it's, wow you're building something and that you've never done before <laughs> and you're having a lot of trouble doing it surprise surprise and so yeah there were many many days of asking yourself hey, what are we doing here do you think that was for your benefit, though, to have never done it before? Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Why? Right. Why is that? Well, I just, that way we come in working with Cliff and we, we take his baseline. Right or wrong, it's just the way he did it. Yeah. Now we have a good foundation and a jumping off point. So 
we, we've made parts for Cliff for years, and so we had some prior knowledge. But, you know, we are, so let's take the Z-brace, you know, the brace that holds the bell to your lead pipe. How many people think about that part? It's just another part. Well, we're going to start making them here in a different way. It's not better or worse, it's just, well, now it's insourced. And so Cliff would not consider that because he didn't have the resources or the time or the interest, whereas now we can take this baseline that we inherited from Cliff and start doing new and interesting things like that to subtly change, maybe improve, but it's a way for us to build upon the foundation. It's a little more efficient. Than yeah, it might be efficient. It might be... It might be um, I hesitate to use the word easier yeah. because a lot of times when, when we're making things, you're taking parts that already exist and you're doing a lot of work to make them into what you want them to be. And frankly, that's unnecessary work, right? There, there's nothing that value add there other than making it fit and be correct in your design. So why not design and make parts that fit your design and your philosophy? So for instance, so pistons, so Cliff never made his own pistons. He made the valve blocks, he made all the tubing, all the slides, the pipe and bell, but he never made pistons. And we've talked about that for years with him. And so now we're going to make pistons in-house. And why do you do that? Well, one, just to have supply continuity. So now we own the supply chain for every part that we have. And there, there's a lot of independence that comes from that as opposed to being dependent on another company. So prior, Cliff was getting pistons from Canstool. Well, Canstool is no longer, and so what are you going to do? Well, you could source them from somewhere else, and you might still be at the, the mercy of that company. Well, here's our chance. Let's let's bring pistons in the house. And so now, all the port design and the casings, all that stuff, now it's matched up. And now we have control over design. If we want to change a stroke distance on a piston, or the bore size on a piston, or a whole pattern. Well, now we can do it. That's pretty. That's pretty awesome. So when you're making all these parts in house, is it a matter of you can do it better, or you just have more control of it, or is it both? It's both. Both. Right. So, to we don't make the best parts in the world. Right. We don't run hardened super precision lathes. We don't run you know aerospace components that require astronomical tolerances. I dealt a lot with those kind of tolerances at Lexmark on, on electrophotography components. And it was insane, right? The level of detail and the money that it would cost to produce parts at micron accuracies, which was a necessity in that business. In this business, you don't need quite that precision, but it has to be really good. And so we take pride in taking the machines and the processes we have, and we make it really freaking good. We measure everything. All of our instruments are calibrated. You know, we do all the right things so that we produce very high accuracy parts. And as a result, though, the horns go together very easily. And so we have to be careful on that cost return curve, right? Again, we could buy a hardened superstition machine and have tenth of an inch accuracy, tenths of tenths, I mean millionths of an inch accuracy. It's, it's kind of wasted money at that point. Uh, so you have to make that, that trade-off on, on that. How do you know when it's... Um a waste of money or a wise investment? So as an engineer at Lexmark, yeah. we did a lot of tolerance analysis. Okay. And so... What, what's, I'm sorry, what's tolerance so analysis? So tolerance analysis is where every part that you make has some tolerance on its dimensions. There's no such thing as a perfect part. Everything is like a diameter of something is plus or minus some amount of distance. And so every part 
has some tolerance. And when you put those all together, all those tolerances start to add up in okay. one way or the other. Okay. And you have to optimize where that tolerance is and how tight things have to be such that the overall result is within a tolerance. So the, the engineering design of a valve cluster is important because you've got 20 something parts that you have to put together. And none of them are gonna be perfect, but they all have to be good enough so that they fit together correctly and function properly. And you don't compromise when you're putting these parts together. So some companies will take parts that are not very well made and they'll force them together, right? And bend and push and shove things together and raise it together and it resembles a, a, a valve section, but it's not very good. Whereas if you design the parts correctly with the right tolerances in the right place, the tolerance stack up works very favorably and the parts just go together better. You don't need fixtures, you don't need clamps, you don't need to screw things together. You're not forcing the horn to go together. The horn wants to go together. Is there ever talk among like you and other trumpet makers, mouthpiece makers, of using like three uh, D printed parts to make a bell, or maybe maybe not using brass? But I've heard I, I've heard talk over the years of using I don't know if it's plastic, but it's it's uh, like a synthetic materials. I guess is what I'm asking. Sure. Is there ever talk about that of like like moving on from traditional materials move, doing something else yes so. yeah absolutely so you know we should never we should never get complacent in how we do things right so people criticize cliff for making trumpets with brass bells oh well he just doesn't want to try something new no it, it works the brass and the ambronze bells that he used the ambronze was a new material it produces a sound that people like and that's cool uh, so you still see companies Innovating, like uh, there's a the carbo bell. It's a, a yeah, carbon that's what fiber bell. Really interesting. I think it's awesome. I think it's good that people try stuff, and some people like it, some people don't, and the reasons are not always cut and dry. Some people don't like the way something looks. All right, that's okay. Um, in terms of 3D printing, you recognize that 3D printing has been around for decades, thirty or forty years, in multiple iterations. And, and in fact, at Lexmark, we used it a ton. The 90s and the 2000s for prototyping cover sets for a printer. There's nothing like it. And so even today, we, we prototype parts out of plastic just to see what they feel like, what they look like. It costs almost nothing. You can make anything in you know, an hour or two. We, uh, we prototype fixtures out of the plastic and we, we put things together and we go, oh, you missed a part where this thing hits. Great, you change it on the CAD system, you print another one. Now you try it. Now you can go hard tool it. So it has been a boon for prototyping, trying new things at near zero cost. It's been very helpful in that regard. So is it, um, when we're, we're talking about innovation using different materials, it, is there, like you, you said before, you're in the people business. So people have to be willing to accept that. Mm -hmm. They have to, if they're gonna go that route, they have to be willing to uh, have be a little open-minded of Maybe, maybe I can play something that's not brass. So we're, we're in the people business. We're in the people business. That means that we're dealing with human beings. Yes. And human beings have a brain and emotions. And emotions. And, you know, we could give you two mouthpieces. Mouthpiece one, 
God knows that this is the right mouthpiece for you, and you would physically and technically play better on it. But mouthpiece number two looks really cool, and it has your name written on it. Which one will you actually play better on? It's number two, because you feel, it feels special to you. Even though God knows, the universe knows that mouthpiece number one is better for you, but you won't be in it. You, your heart won't be in it, and you won't play it very well. But the other one in, you stand up straighter, you take a deeper breath, and your body conforms and makes it do things that you never knew that you could do. It's a human business. And oftentimes you see technicians entering this business, like, like myself, like an engineer, that might think, well, mechanically, this is a better mouthpiece. It's 2.3% more efficient and da-da-da-da-da. I don't understand why you don't like it. Well, but the fact is, you don't like what it looks like. And that, that, as much as we hate to admit it, is a serious component. Yeah. And as long as we remember that in the people business, we're dealing with humans, we can be much more um, open-minded, we can be warmer, we can, be, we can work with you, as opposed to thinking that you're just insane and you don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> frankly, you do. Nobody knows you better than you. And we have to listen to that and adapt. And then as a result, in our partnership, we come up with something that is, is far better. So why doesn't God just tell Peter Pickett to put the person's name on mouthpiece number one? Well, I did put my name on mouthpiece number one, and I thought it was great. So there you go. Is it the perfect mouthpiece? Oh, absolutely. Is there such thing as a perfect mouthpiece? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not in the least. And, you know, you would think that uh, with all the cool stuff we have here that I would be making myself a mouthpiece every day to uh, play better. But, you know, frankly, it's uh, <laughs> I don't do that. And it's unfortunate. So I play on a 60. Um Great, you know, it's, it's off-the-shelf model that we have, and it works for me. Is there something better? Eh, probably, but <laughs> I'm really happy with it. And, you know, it works. Yeah, we're not we're not laser machines at Lexmark. No, we're human beings. Yes, I guess humans have a high level of tolerance. Well, a high high degree of variability. It, that's that's about yeah. yeah. Everybody's dental structure is different. Their oral cavity is different. Their face is different. Their their mindset is different on what they want things to sound like. How about how about if someone comes into your into your um, shop and they're like they want a new mouthpiece and you can sense this person is not in a good frame of mind maybe they just got off the airplane maybe they just got into a fight with their wife whatever how do you how do you deal with that because it seems to me like you would know this person if this person were to go to his hotel room or her, her hotel room get some sleep and come back we're going to have a totally different, this conversation is going to be very different. Yes. Do you ever come into situations like that? Sure. Everybody, no, nobody's in the right frame of mind when they come here. Really? No. I mean, okay. every, every, this is, for some people, this is a, a dedicated trip, but much like yourself, it's, it happens to be on the way. Sure. They've always been sure. interested. <laughs> By the way, I need a mouthpiece. We, we have to take people where they are and help them through that so okay. that they do make a better choice and they have a better experience, right? If they're rushed and then I turn around and I rush, well, they leave with not a great impression of, of anything. Whereas, you know, you show up, it's clear that you're a little in you know, work. So, hey, let's just sit down. Let me give you a tour. Let me show you how we do things. Um, let's go next door to the showroom and you want to just play a little bit. I'm going to go back over and finish a couple things. Just relax. Here's some water. Here's a cup of coffee. Play a little bit. We have to take people where they are. So oftentimes we'll get uh, middle school or high school students in or even collegiate students that they get here, they're super excited. They're on the other end of the spectrum, right? They're, they've never been to a factory before. 
and I think it's really special and it's wonderful they get to come to a factory. But on the flip side, they get really nervous when we ask them to play, right? Because we forget that that people often look up to us you know, because they're, you know, you've never met me. You've never, you think everything is great and you know, now i got to play for this guy. So we have to be respectful of that too and help them get to the right place so that they can play well, so that they can make, that we can work together more yep. effectively. So we have to spend a lot of time approaching people where they are in whatever mood they come in and helping them feel comfortable and relaxed because the experience is what they're coming for. Mouthpiece is a side benefit. The experience is what people ultimately enjoy here. Meeting the people that actually make a blackbird trumpet. Meeting the, the people that actually make their mouthpiece. That, that's special. It, it puts a face with a, a nameless or a faceless company. Kind of thing. It's the Peter Pickett with Pickett mouthpieces. Yeah. The Pickett mouthpieces. Yeah. And you know what? He turned out to be a really nice guy and he wasn't yeah, a big jerk. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised. Right? You know, people come in with all sorts of impressions, but when you, when you meet them where they are, yeah, it's relaxing, it's pleasant, low-key. So you're friends with like all the mouthpiece makers? Oh, yeah. It, think about how big this industry is. It's not that big. Oh, you mean like trumpet? Well, trumpet and mouthpiece makers. Mouthpiece makers. Right? So you have generations of people. So yeah. Zig Cancel, right? And that generation who just passed away, that was one of the last ones of that that, that uh, vintage. And now you have folks like Terry Warburg, right? And that class, Bob Reeves, you know, these guys, you know, they have seen it all. You know, they have seen it all through their decades of experience. And, you know... They are very respectful of their elders, and they're very respectful of the next generation of us. And as a result, though, we all get along, and we all learn from each other. You know, Terry was very helpful with me when I first started on some basic tooling things, basic questions. More than happy to help me. And we turn around, we help him out. Maybe not as often, but you know, it works both ways. Bob Reeves and I talk at every show that we go to and catch up. But then you have the next generation. So it's me, it's like uh, Carl Hammond, but guys like that, next generation down, who are doing a lot of the similar things, we all get along, we all have our specialties and our our brands, and there's no reason to discount anybody else, because if you like your ham and mouthpiece, man, more power to you. Carl's a great guy, he makes great stuff. Not gonna hurt my feelings. And when Carl has a customer that he can't please, then he sends them our way. It's all good. Because at the end of the day, it's probably not a zero-sum game because you buy Carl's mouthpiece doesn't mean tomorrow you're not going to buy my mouthpiece. Yeah. It's just not the way. You view them as competitors? Uh, in the very lightest of, of ways. Okay. Friendly. Right? Yeah, because again, we, 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 I don't I don't ever put anybody down. There's no reason, there's no reason to spend an ounce of energy on disparaging our friends and our competitors and colleagues. I, it doesn't do me any good. I mean, what, what do you think when I say that this other guy, he's a jerk and his stuff is a bunch of crap? Why are you talking about his stuff? What's wrong with your stuff? Why aren't you telling me how great your stuff is? So I think it's a waste of energy, and I think it's disrespectful, um, and I think it's ignorant to forget that these guys have value. Some of them have been in business a lot longer than you have. Yeah. So who are you to discount them and to disparage them? Who do you think you are? I, that's that's just not the way to be. And so we're, we're not like that. So you show up with a Monet mouthpiece. Some companies would, representatives would say, man, that stuff is trash. I can't believe you're playing on that. But the fact is, you've been playing on it. It works for you. You sound like you on it. 
that's a good thing. And I have great respect for that. If it works for you, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Let me know how we can help. But um, yeah, so you have a lot of controversy, I think, in this very tiny industry that it's unnecessary when, frankly, it's not that big. And two, why don't we all get along? And for the most part, we do. And it's, it's more fun that way, too. You're not avoiding people in the halls. You're not putting out flame wars on Facebook, which, again, is a complete waste of energy. Right? So we have, we have our detractors. And, you know, so be it. Everybody does. But we won't be out there disparaging our friends and colleagues and business. Well, Peter, we're uh, running and going for 45 minutes or so. And uh, But before I let you go, I, ha- I actually have some news for you. All right. And I need to ask your guidance. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, like, you're, you're now one of the big fish in the small pond called Trumpet. Yes, okay? yes, yes. And it turns out that I'm going into the mouthpiece business myself. Excellent. I am. And I want to get your guidance on what should I do? I've been playing a picket mouthpiece for five years, and it's just not working for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just need to find something that that it's allows me to express myself the best way. Yeah, good. So go create it yourself. Okay. Great. I think that's a great way to go. It's in your heart. You're coming from the right motivation. I think that's awesome. So you have to remember two things going into the mouthpiece business. All right. Number one, it's just a mouthpiece. It's not going to cause world peace. It's not going to cure cancer. It's just a mouthpiece. That's that's one one rule number one of, of stay humble on what you're actually doing. Just because you invent the mouthpiece doesn't mean that you're going to save the world. Number two, remember who you are. You're a nobody. That's something that we have to remember here. People, you know, sing our praises and think that we're the greatest thing ever. We're not Yamaha. We're just a small, teeny company here in Lexington, and we happen to like what we do. And that way you stay humble, and then you won't go out there looking like a pompous you-know-what. Like, number one, you've got the mouthpiece that's going to solve world, world cancer. And two, I am the greatest thing ever. And those are the two mistakes that most new makers make. They forget both sides of that. So I think it's great. You're going to go make a mouthpiece. And I think it's I think it's a wonderful experience. It's a fun creating thing that is very close to what we do. But you have to keep your mind in the right place such that you know, people are willing to work with you and listen. And Did you have that guidance when you first started? No, and I came across that really in two ways. I, you know, most entrepreneurs are all about themselves, right? When they start out, they think that they have the greatest ideas in the world and, you know, damn, well, I'm going to get rich and everybody's going to listen to me. I, I didn't really think like that when I started this. My, my number one drive here, and everybody here in the shop knows it, is process. Process is my favorite thing. I like how things are done. And this is just an industry that happens to be near and dear to my heart. And if we can do things well and efficiently, then it makes everything more enjoyable. So I'm in the back room working hard on that. That's what drove me, is to be able to do this stuff easily and efficiently and accurately all together, because that's magic. That's magic. There are a lot of people who do things the hard way, and they work really hard, and they come up with great products. I'm not sure that's the best way to do it because I, I think that's short-sighted. So process is my, 
and that that doesn't require me to have the world's greatest mouthpiece. So we made a mouthpiece. You know, if you like it, it's great. If it's not, it's okay. And two, I remembered that you know nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares who I am. Show me your mouthpiece. That's okay. So staying humble has helped us not get a reputation of arrogance, and that's incredibly important for a long time. Is it more difficult to design the perfect mouthpiece, build the perfect mouthpiece, or design and build the perfect trumpet? Mm. Which is more difficult? <laughs> well, it depends on what you think perfect is. The uh, mouthpieces are astronomically easier because it's one part. Yeah. All right, trumpets are very difficult because the number of variables is infinite. And so a lot of that just, you know, we have not had enough experience in trumpet design to really go after that. So we inherited all of those designs. We have made a few new designs off of his stuff, very small tweaks that have been very successful. But that's not to say we know how to design trumpets per se. But a mouthpiece, on the other hand, there, there are lots of good rules of thumb and equations and stuff that make it a little more straightforward to create. So the jury is out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make you a mouthpiece before I make you a trumpet. Or better, I'll make you both. Trumpet Dynamics is produced by Beaten Path Media, LLC. Special thanks to Mike Vax for allowing use of Serenade to a Bus Seat for the show's theme music. To stay in the loop with the growing community of trumpeters who enjoy this podcast, just type trumpetdynamics.com in your browser, and you're off to the races. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm your host. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.